Welcome back to the Shema Podcast, my friends. The topic today is something that everyone goes through when they begin their process of teshuva, and that is that they experience hardships once they begin this process, which seems counterintuitive. Here one is trying to become closer to God, and it seems like he is pushing them away. But we need to break down what is happening. For one, we have to define the word teshuva because what it means is to return to who we are, to our neshama, because the neshama is naturally already close to God. And then we need to break down what is happening because the way I've heard it described is that there is retribution that God is placing on the person for their previous sins, but that is really not an accurate description of what is occurring. When we sin, we do not take anything from God. When we do a mitzvah, we're not adding to God. So what is actually occurring here? The beauty of this world, the construct, is that everything in this world is a physical manifestation of a spiritual equivalent and its spiritual source, which means this world is set up with nothing but analogous situations to the spiritual counterpart. So for example, a parent loves their child so much, but it's really not rational at first glance. If a child says, hey, I'm 20 years old now. I know what I want to do with my life. I want to simply chill out and start using heroin. Now you would think logically the parent would say, that doesn't take from me. If you want to do heroin, if you want to waste your life away in a In the falsity of the pleasure of a heroin high, go for it. It doesn't take from me, but we know that's not the case. The parent is in agony over watching their child do something that's so harmful for themselves. And why is that? Well, yes, they are separate from us, but they're not, right? Our children are an extension of us. And why is that? Is because We were one of the parties, the three parties with our spouse and with God at creating them. So through that extension, we love them more than we love ourselves. And that is exactly the analogy that Hashem created for us in the way he looks at us. He loves us more than we love our children. So what's with the retribution? Here's a better analogy to explain what is taking place. If someone at the age of 40 looks in the mirror and says, you know, I really need to get into shape. I don't think I've had any physical exercise since high school gym class. So they join a gym and they get a personal trainer. And they tell the personal trainer, you got to get me into shape. And the personal trainer says, you got it. So they begin their workout regimen that first day. And the person is watching the personal trainer go through the motions of the exercise. It looks simple. It looks easy, but when they go to do it, every movement feels so awkward. And why is that? It's because they have not been exercising their mind-body connection. So what looks so effortless for the personal trainer is entirely awkward for them. And as they go through the workout, their heart is racing. It hasn't increased its rhythm in so long that the person is feeling nauseous. They don't feel good at all during this process. 
And then they go home exhausted and wake up the next morning and every muscle on their body is sore. And they go back to the gym the next day, meet with the personal trainer and say, look, I came here to get your help because I wanted to feel better. I wanted to have more energy, more vitality. I feel worse than I've ever felt before. What is going on? And the personal trainer explains, well, yes, but you never have put any resistance on your body. And so this pain you're feeling is really part of the process to get your body strong. And so the person moves on with perseverance, shows up every day, and over the course of 30 days, they start to feel good. They go through the motions. They don't wake up sore in the morning. They go to meet the next day with the personal trainer and say, hey, I'm feeling good now. I like this. And the personal trainer says, yes, I know. I saw how you've been getting much stronger during this process. So I'm going to be introducing some new exercises. And the person is saying, well, what's wrong with the old ones? And the personal trainer says, well, you have to constantly do things different ways in order to provide resistance and pressure on your muscles in different ways if they're going to get stronger. And the person does these new exercises, feeling awkward once again. And they sit down to do some of the exercises they had done before for the previous 30 days. And they're looking at the trainer perplexed. And they're saying, there's too much weight on the bar. This is not what I do. And the personal trainer says, well, yes, because that resistance was now too light. I have to put more resistance on if you're going to continue to get stronger. And the person wakes up the next morning sore once again. And they come to see the personal trainer and say, what is happening? And the personal trainer explains that, look, the muscles either are going to be in a state of growth or atrophy. So if you want to get stronger, you have to go through this process day in and day out. When we begin our journey of becoming closer to God, our soul is very much out of shape. Our identification as a soul has not been developed. You know, when someone decides they want to get into shape, a lot of the reasons because of our, the vanity of our culture is that they've gained weight over the years because their body has been in a state of inactivity. Likewise, what happens to an individual when they haven't been flexing and exercising their spiritual muscle? They develop an ego or what we call in Torah, the Yetzer Hara. The Yetzer Hara is that virus They got introduced into the system into mankind when Adam ate from the tree of good and bad, confusing things and causing one to think that everything they have comes from them, not God. And when you look at the other side through our teacher, Moses, and how he became the greatest man ever and the greatest prophet ever, is he negated the ego. He conquered the Yetzirah. He created a vacuum inside of him by negating the ego, allowing God to reside within him, allowing him to have prophecy while he was conscious, something no other prophet has ever done. Every other prophet had to disengage from the physical world through the physical senses and have prophecy in a state of sleep. So as you can see, when someone begins this quest for spirituality and a connection to God, what is the main thing typically blocking them? It is a bloated ego, a bloated sense of self. 
And so what is the resistance that God is going to provide to us to remove what is blocking him from connecting with us? And that is the ego. And that's why we see many things happen, many occurrences that we weren't experiencing before we decided to become religious. And now we're experiencing them for the first time, and they're typically there to help us remove the ego. I'm going to share a story of something that just happened to me last week. I had a day at work where I was on fire. I was solving every problem, creating new systems for sales, developing new marketing systems. I was on a leadership call, contributing to the overall vision, strategic planning of the organization. I was on the call with an investment team, helping them out. I was on the call with the compliance team, offering guidance to them. By the end of the day, I felt like a genius. I was thinking, how in the world could this organization survive without me and my sheer brilliance that I bring to this organization? I was so full of myself, feeling quite proud of everything I am and everything I contribute. And at the end of the day, I realized there was something I had to take care of. The day before, I realized when I got home that someone had backed into my car when I was not in the car. Obviously, it happened when I was in a parking lot. My brand new, beautiful Lexus with a dent and paint all over the front fender on the driver's side front wheel. I was so upset. So I called the insurance company and explained to them that I needed to do a claim against my uninsured motorist. And they said, that's fine, but in the state of Texas, you're going to need a police report. So I said, that's fine. So I brought a constable out to my home, apologized for having to bother him for something so trivial, but explained that the only way I was going to get the uninsured motorist policy with the lower deductible to pay for these repairs, I needed him to do this. And he was very gracious and said, no problem. I'm I'm here to help. So I pulled my car out of the garage so we could examine the damage together. And he began to walk through with me where I was those previous days. I told him about the various places I went to run errands, where I went to, how long I was there. And he pointed out, he said, so do you ever recall where you were parked, where you were parked next to a beige car since the paint on the car is beige? I said, that's a great point. Obviously, it was a beige car that ran into me. So I began to think with him and go through. And I was like, I can't remember the colors of the cars next to me. And we couldn't figure it out. So I said, that's fine. He went to the police car and began to input his report. And as he was doing that, I was walking around like, okay, where was I where I parked next to a beige car, a beige car. And I was thinking, it's like the same color as my house. Where was I parked next to a car, the same color as my house? Hmm, where? And then I noticed something. I went around and noticed that on the side of the garage that was painted beige, it was very clear that the car had scraped up against the paint. And that is where the paint came from. I got very excited that I solved this crime. And I went and knocked on the police officer's window and said, Sir, you got to come out. Don't follow it yet. I know exactly what took place. So I brought him up. I showed him. It's the paint from my house, officer. You see right here on the wall next to the garage right back out? It's scraped against that. So I know exactly what took place. When I was in that store, 
someone hotwired my car, brought it back here to rob my home. They probably heard the dog bark because even though it's a little 15, 20 pound Bashan dog, it, it's very small, but the bark is loud. So the person freaked out, decided to flee the crime, and in their haste, they backed the car out of the garage, scraping it alongside the paint on the garage door, went back and left the car in the parking lot, fleeing the crime like nothing had ever happened. And I said, who could be so devious? I saw the look in the police officer's face and he said, Mr. Coleman, that is a good theory. But, you know, I want to propose maybe another theory. I said, sure, I'm open. Mine's pretty good, but let's hear what you have to say. He said, is it possible, Mr. Coleman, that when you were leaving to run one of those errands, that you accidentally backed out and you scraped the car against the garage, creating the dent and the paint along the side of your car? And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, that is a possibility. And he nodded his head and I said, and that probably is exactly what happened. And I felt like such an idiot. It was so obvious. And I went inside like going, realizing I had gone from being the smartest man on the planet to being the stupidest man on the planet in the matter of 60 minutes. And I realized what happened. I realized the beauty of what God orchestrated for me to remind me that the intellect I have is what he grants me on a moment-to-moment basis, depending upon what I'm wanting to use it for. And when I think it's all coming from me, he, out of his kindness, because he knows I'm working every day to become closer to him, he orchestrated an event to make me realize I can take that intellect away and you will become the stupidest man in the world. Remember where your intellect comes from. The only thing you control is whether or not you recognize me on a moment-to-moment basis, or think that everything is coming from you, and worship the idolatry of your ego, the foreign god, the Yetzirah. All these things that happen to us are just that. They're not punishments. They're not retribution from an angry God. They're simply there because God is saying, yes, I love this. I want to help you come closer. But maybe you have an issue that you are pursuing money, and you are greedy with it. So if he wants to remove that obstacle between you and him, what is he going to do? He is going to more than likely take your money away. Cause a financial hardship. And is that a punishment? If the quest is to become close to God, and that is something that is impairing your closeness to God, then no. What he is doing is orchestrating something to help you overcome that. Keeping in mind that once money becomes framed properly and that it all comes from God, and your job is to be a good fiduciary over that and give tzedakah to the right places and all those things in which we use money to provide for our families, but knowing all the time that it all comes from him, then he'll restore it to us. Some people may have lived a life so foreign and distant from identification with the soul that all they identified with was the body, and it, comp- and it created a compulsion to where their entire focus was improving the aesthetics of the physical body. What is God going to do at that point if he wants to help you become closer to him and realize that that physical body is just a temporary avatar for your soul to interact with this world, creating the opportunity 
for you, the real you, the neshama, to come closer to him. He may cause situations to occur that will allow you to have the opportunity to break that. And these, this custom curriculum is being designed for you by him at all times. But it's not punishment. It's not retribution. He's seeing the blockade between you and him, and he is helping you, and he is creating the circumstances to allow us to remove those obstacles, and that is it. So they're all blessings. We just have to look, what is God trying to teach me with this new set of circumstances? And by recognizing it for what it is, then we can take on the challenge of learning and growing and removing that obstacle. And part of this strengthening of the soul is there because God wants to give us the ultimate gift. What is that ultimate gift that we cannot quite really comprehend, but it's what we call Olam Abba, the world to come. I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but I know that this world entails a resurrection of the dead. I know that in the new physical avatar of the bodies that will be created for us, they will have no digestive tract. There will be no eating. Why? Because the purpose for eating in this world, for the body needing food, is a way to humble us. So we know that we are dependent on another, that we are dependent on God. But in that world, where our sensory perception will be totally more tied into him than in the physical world, we won't need that. We won't need reproductive organs. Because the, the analogous relationship between parent and child and child and parent will no longer be necessary. We will know we are the child and God is our father. So he's trying to prepare and get us ready so that we will become a vessel that can exist in that world and we can have the ultimate pleasure. But what about someone who spends their entire life not preparing themselves to receive that world and that pleasure he wants to give us. Knowing too that God is outside of time. So you can always see if I do X, he'll do Y. If I do Z, he'll do A, etc. So when you have someone, a Jew, who no matter what God tries to orchestrate, they just don't want to acknowledge the role here, that they are a spiritual being in this world in a very temporary lifetime to draw closer to God. What happens if they never do anything to prepare themselves so they can't receive that blessing of Alamabad. They, they haven't done anything to forge themselves into a vessel to receive the pleasure he wants to bestow on them. In those situations, the only way the Almighty can bestow blessings is in this world. And they end up becoming very successful billionaires. And we see so many of our Jewish brothers that are powerful, They're wealthy, the wealthiest billionaires in the world. And they are so far away from pursuing any type of connection to the Almighty, claiming back and acknowledging his Torah. Through the lens of Torah, when you see our brothers and sisters that are billionaires and they are so far from God in Torah, what is very likely and sadly happening is that he has had to bestow all the pleasure he had in store for them in this world. And quite frankly, that pleasure is nothing. Even if someone became a billionaire at the age of 25, they lived to 175 years of living life as an extremely wealthy person, what does that really mean? 
You know, when I was a kid, I used to love playing with matchbox cars. I loved it when I got a new one. I lay there on the living room floor, pushing the cars around, making the noises. It was the most pleasurable thing in the world. And then when I was in my early 20s and I had young nephews, and they would ask me, Uncle Dan, will you play with us? And I would sit there just like, this is the most mind-numbing activity. What in the world do they find pleasurable about pushing around this piece of metal with wheels around on the ground? What did I find pleasurable about that? That's nonsensical. And that is exactly how someone will feel when they realize they gave up everything, billions of dollars. It's like pushing matchbox cars around to really, if you, if you compare it to what God really wants to give us. So when I am looking for people I want to connect with and be around and associate with, it's like in the secular world. You know, they say, if you want to be a, a millionaire, a successful business person, a billionaire, associate with billionaires who are business people because you will automatically pick up things from them, their mindsets and how they live their life and adapt those for yourself. And that will lead you having the same outcome. So when I am looking for those that I connect with, I want to find who are the spiritual athletes, who are the spiritual billionaires. And those are the people you see that are constantly getting new resistance. And regardless of how much resistance they're getting, they forge ahead every day, learning a new piece of Torah, working on improving their Muna, working on more concentration while davening, whatever it may be, they come in every day like an athlete and train, regardless of how sore and exhausted they may feel. That, my friends, is the type of person you want to attach to and associate with. You know, I created the small podcast because I realized that while I have so much to learn, I still have learned more than many others. And I felt, why should all of you go through the same hardships and make the same mistakes I made? It just makes sense to set up a venue where if I'm a few steps ahead of you, I can share with you, I made this mistake, don't make it yourself. And I have a very good friend of mine that has been there with me for the last year, especially day in and day out, us supporting each other as we go through this process. And as we spoke the other Shabbos, I realized he has many experiences and he has agreed to come on and share those with you as well. While the rest of the world, which is upside down, looks at the financial billionaire who is powerful and They have so much clout and influence in the world while the rest of the world looks at them and says, what a success. We know through the lens of Torah, they're the ones that are in trouble. The successes are the people like who I am bringing on. My dear friend, Scott Cameron, spiritual athlete and spiritual billionaire. Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. All right, Scott Kamerman, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Dan. So you mentioned on Shabbos that you had some experiences that you thought would lend to the Shema podcast. Meaning what I've always done with this, as I said in the intro, was I designed it 
so that I could share with other Jews mistakes I've already made. And really, if you look at my resume, that my sterling resume for being the host of this podcast, it's that I've made every possible mistake there is. I'm constantly clueless. I go into every Jewish social situation without any idea what's going on. You've seen me at shul. I have no idea what's going on. I went to my first bris probably two or three months ago, and I never told you the story, but it's a true story. I go in there, and I'm like, finally, Hymish is getting some nice chairs. And I start to sit down, and someone says, no, man, that's for Elijah the prophet and for the Sondic to sit when the kid's getting a bris. I was like, oh, okay, fine. I'll just go sit back in the Hymish plastic fold-up chairs. That's me. I'm clueless. I make every mistake possible, and that is what equips me to host this show because I can show every Jew everything not to do. And so you're saying that you have what it takes to share some stories as well. Oh, gosh. is it? It's <laughs> that Look, first of all, it's important to go mention with regard to the bris that you went to. One thing I've learned, and I knew this before even beginning any, any Baal Teshuvah journey, is just a little bit of note for everybody out there. Um, the best seat in the house, as far as I'm concerned, at a bris is the one that's in the way back in the corner. The farther away <laughs> from the action, I understand. You've got the you know the holiness there. But nope, for me, I'm fine being in the back. No problem there. So, look, you and I have spoken a lot about uh, so many things. I think what was great a few months ago when we were talking, when you were doing, did that amazing job for, for 48 hours, you were broadcasting from the Torch Center. And you, you, know, you and I were talking about the fact that we're kind of like hearkening back to the to the days of camp, of day camp, and going uh, swimming, and all the time, uh, you know, the lifeguards from time to time would go and blow their whistle and say, where's your swim buddy? You know, and you have to, you have to pause it to hold their hand and make sure that it's there, because otherwise, God forbid, somebody might be drowning or something. So, you know, in this whole, in, in this whole uh, journey that I feel as though you and I are taking together, we have our different ways that have different reasons that have brought us to this point. We've quickly become swim buddies, spiritual swim buddies, I would even say. It really is interesting, too, because, you know, I think what's great is that it becomes, and even when you and I have been talking about the great things you're doing with the Shema podcast, what I would say is it's very interesting. So quite often, I find that you and I actually help out one another. And I think that's the beautiful part um, of this journey. Look, it's great because when we're over in shul, we sit next to one another. And so there are times, look, I, I just I have a little more experience with, with Hebrew and being able to follow the prayers, even though many times it's at shul, it can go very fast, even for me. But many times I can turn to you and I can point out where, where we are, let's say. On the flip side, you know, your understanding of the deeper meanings of Torah and the how to apply that to daily life. There are many times where you're giving me great advice and, and great assurance or reassurance. And so I think, you know, we're it's it's really becomes it becomes a great balance of what both of us are kind of offering one another. I so agree with that and you can see divine intervention involved because I've always looked to you as the one that's helping you're helping me out because you know so much more. You know so much more about like the Shabbos meal and how, especially before I moved out here, when I just moved out here, I never really sort of spent a lot of time around the Shabbos table or at shul. And then you said, no, you're helping me out. And it seems like basically where we each are, we have different, we come in with different strengths and weaknesses 
And that's perfect because we're both helping each other out all the time as a result. Absolutely. And, you know, to the part what I always think is is fantastic is uh, your amuna and bitachon. Your understanding, your, your, your belief in Hashem, your, your trusting of Him, the examples that you've set of positive things that have come about as a result of your spiritual growth, it's really has been, it's amazing, and it, it, it encourages me along that route. Sometimes I find, you know, and I try, I try for it not to be, but sometimes, you know, my knowledge of the blessings and, and, and davening and so forth is just, you know, years of experience of just doing it. And of course, the challenge I have is making sure, as the challenge that everybody has, is making sure that it's not mechanical, to making sure, I, and for me, it's always in my mind to not to make sure that I'm davening with Kavana and it's that it doesn't just become mechanical, that I wanted to go and have that spiritual spark. And, and it's interesting because I, again, drawing the similarity as well, again, it's, it's, you really have that, that, uh, that spiritual spark. It's just some of the, some of the mechanics, which, you know, you're learning about that. And it's, it's really, it's amazing. It's inspiring. To see, and that's why I was going to say, it's just, Really, a lot of times, just repetition. It's osmosis being around it. But you've got the core. That's, that's for me, it's like, I'll be honest with you, I'd love to kind of switch with you and be in a position where I have your level of amuna. Because my, I wouldn't say that I'm, I, I strive it every day, obviously. It's a constant, it's always a challenge in life, especially when you're about to shuva. It, it's, you know, one constantly has to go and get up in, every morning with, with a drive because your Yetzirah is, is trying to get you to fall back into complacency. I see you, I see all that you've done to, to, to come move down here to the neighborhood, to commit your life to, I mean, everything that you do is for Hashem and your family and everything. It's, I, that's why I talk about all the time, Alan inspiring it is. I appreciate that, Scott. Look, we all go through these ups and downs with Amuna. No one's at some constant high. If I seem like I am all the time, then that's been misportrayed because there's times when I get frustrated. So I start off talking about the, the challenge. People start going through this process and it shocks people. Like, what is happening? Like, I would think like if you were reuniting with a with an old love that they would shower you with wine and fine dining it seems like Hashem's doing just the opposite and I try to like lay it out in a better way than it's retribution for your past sins and I thought it'd be a good thing to set people's expectations this will happen but to help them think through what we sort of gone through and how to discover the learning process the what, what the learning what the lesson is that you're trying that Hashem's wanting you to learn so you overcome those situations. So I don't know. Do you have any experiences as you began this journey where things happened? And then how did you go about finding out the lesson and, and working through them? You know, by all means, uh, my journey really began several years ago. And it, it's interesting. Uh, we were speaking a little bit before we started broadcasting here about the fact of what drives somebody to become a Baal Teshuvah. Like, what is that spark? Sometimes uh, it's, it's. I think we, we had agreed with regard to, as you had mentioned, sometimes the big driving force for you was, was the intellectual side. For me, it was a very kind of emotional side. It was something that was something emotional that sparked within me. So several years ago, I was overseeing a large community event. It was very successful. I was received all sorts of uh, wonderful kavod and compliments on it. 
And I had such, such a high. I remember just, it was just such a wonderful feeling. I had worked really hard on this event. And I'll never forget, I, I just moved to a new house. I came home that night. I'll never forget the feeling I had when I came home to my house. I'd been gone all day and my house was completely pitch black. And there was nobody at home. And I walked in and there was the feeling that all of a sudden, not that I felt bad, but all of a sudden, abruptly, that high I was feeling and just, you know, uh, just thinking so highly of myself. <laughs> I came home to just a dark house and I thought, oh, okay, wow. Um, you know, I, the feeling just kind of stopped. There was, there was nothing there to kind of keep it going. And then going into the next day, in fact, I ran into some of the same people and some of them went and... A couple of people went and said, oh, it was a very nice event. And the other people didn't. They just said, hey, how you doing? And they, kept, and they moved on with their lives. And that's when I started understanding, understanding, of course, about the fact that recognition, honor, and these sorts of things are very fleeting. Nothing lasts forever, as they go and say. And that's what really kind of started within me a desire to search for something more, something deeper. And that's what really led me towards having a conversation with Rabbi Wolby, who I had known uh, for a couple of years, liked very much. Obviously, it's hard not to like him. This is Rabbi Arya Wolby. Rabbi, right, Rabbi Arya Wolby. And uh, we got together. I still remember it like it was yesterday. I asked him if we could get together and speak, and we went to the Torch Center, and I told him many of these things and just kind of the, about the fact of feeling sort of unfulfilled in life and sort of wondering exactly what to end up doing. And he just casually mentioned to me about coming to a Musar class, a class to go and dealing with self-reflection and about looking at, at our own individual traits, both the good and the bad, a lot of self-examination. And that really began me on my path from that. Then it became going to a Partners in Torah, a study session, and I was invited for a Shabbos, uh, a Shabbos dinner and then a Shabbos experience, and it just happened organically. Nobody told me you should do this. I was never told or urged, and I was never pushed into doing anything that I wasn't comfortable doing. But through my learning and my growing, I started realizing, of course, the physical versus the spiritual. And that really this connection and growth really comes from a connection to Torah and connection to Judaism. And uh, that's where, I mean, these were sort of of the earliest experiences that really kind of set me on that path. Thank you for listening to Becoming a Spiritual Athlete with Scott Kamerman, Part 1. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of Part 2. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.